We are in week number two in our series called Stiff Competition. And last week was a memorable one if you were here. If you were not, you did not quite get the visual that everyone else did. Because Pastor Brad was seated right here on a bicycle. And though he pedaled for about 35 minutes, he did not get anywhere. But he was giving us the, the visual of the, the link, the parallel between our spiritual fitness and physical fitness as he worked out on the bicycle. Now, he joked that this was one of my ploys to help reduce his message time, uh, but true to form, he's in great shape, and he went for 35 minutes there, kept on chugging. No variance in his voice, no sweat that could be seen. I think he could have, probably could have preached a sermon twice as long. Now, I thought this morning, well, let's keep the theme going. Maybe I'll just do push-ups while I preach. But, you know, then I think the message would be about three minutes long, so I need a little bit more time than that to keep going. The statement that Brad said last week has actually stayed with me for the rest of the past seven days. You might remember it. Brad said, the challenge with physical fitness, the challenge with spiritual fitness, is that I want to get fit, I just don't want to put in the effort. Do you remember him saying that? I want to get fit, I just don't want to put in the effort. Now, most of us do not want to admit that statement. I haven't heard many people say, I'd love to lose weight, Keith, but I just don't want to put in the effort. And the reason is, is because we really value hard work and effort in our society, right? These are things that that we commend of other people. I don't hear a lot of people saying, look at that guy, he's lazy. Wow, that's amazing. We don't, we don't applaud it when people give the bare minimum. We do not get all excited when people give up. Son, let me teach you how to give up. This is how you do it. No, we do the opposite. We applaud going the extra mile. We get all excited about working, outworking the competition. In the business world, that's, that's how we're going to be successful. We're going to outwork the competition. We're going to outserve our, our customers, our clients. We talk about giving 110%, which is impossible on so many levels. I won't go down that trail. But, but this is sort of our cultural mantra. That mantra. That's, that's how we're going to get this done. We love the idea of working hard. We would not want to confess that the reason that we can't get something that we want is actually because we do not want to put in the effort. But this confession is true for pretty much all of us, at least in some area of our life. This statement, I want to get fit, I want to reach this goal, I'm just not willing to put in the effort to accomplish that goal, is sadly true for so many of us. We may not say it, but the things in our life actually demonstrate this fact. Now, in conversations that I've had over the years with people here at Jericho Ridge and in other contexts, I've seen this statement come out in real life. Again, people are not literally saying this, but I hear them say things, and then I observe what they do in their life, and there's a conflict. Their lives say things like this to me. I'd like to get out of debt, Keith, but I'm not willing to adjust my spending habits. I'd like to rid myself of bitterness, but I don't want to forgive. I'd like our kids to follow Jesus, but I'm not willing to make church 
the number one priority for our weekends together. I'd like to hear from God, but I'm not willing to sacrifice time to truly listen. In essence, I hear people saying, I want to change, I just don't want to put in the effort to be changed. Now, two summers ago, a small group of people from Jericho Ridge met together at a local Starbucks for a book club. I was part of that group. We spent a few weeks. Once a week, we got together and we studied a book written by a pastor named Andy Stanley. The book is called The Principle of the Path. And true to form, the, there was one principle in this book, very specific. Andy Stanley talks about it throughout the entire book over and over and over again. And his point is this. Direction, not intention, determines destination. Our direction in life, not our intention, is what determines where we end up going. I can't say, I want to be more hospitable and have it just happen. You actually have to be on a path that leads towards becoming more hospitable if you expect to actually become more hospitable. It doesn't matter what you want or what you dream about. It's actually your direction, where you're ending up going, where you're pointing. That's going to determine where you end up. And I mention this because many of us do not think about where we're going. We just kind of hope that we'll end up somewhere eventually. We might have dreams but we aren't currently on a road that's going to lead to that dream. And this often can result in frustration, dissatisfaction when we find out, I'm getting hurt because I'm not, this goal in my life is not being accomplished and I don't understand why. Direction, not intention, determines destination. This is a principle that's true for every part of our life. It's true in our physical life. It's true in our relationships. It's true in our finances. And it's true in our spiritual lives as well. And I want to suggest to you this morning that many of you, maybe all of you, but most of us, most of us who would call ourselves Christians, most of us who read the Bible, most of us who have made a decision to follow Jesus, share a common intention with a destination that we would like to be at at some point in our lives. Most Christians have a phrase in their mind that when the day of judgment day comes, When they are told to give an account, they have a bit of a picture for what they would like to hear, what they would like to see. And some of you may already know what I'm talking about. Some of you may not be quite there, but you're going to recognize it as soon as I say it. Most of us have this goal or this vision or this destination that on the day of judgment, when we are told to give an account for our lives, we're going to hear a phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of of your master. Sound familiar? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's a phrase of accomplishment, faithfulness. This phrase has almost become synonymous with salvation itself in the Christian world. And this phrase comes from a story, a very specific story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew. But my question is, If that's a destination that many of us would like to end up at, if that's an intention that many of us have of hearing, what path leads down that road? Where do you need to be facing if you can actually expect to hear those words? Well, the good news is that this parable tells us very directly. It's one of the most direct parables that we have from Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. 
And I encourage you to grab a Bible and flip there. It's the first gospel in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, I would love it if 5, 10, 15, 20 of you stood up right now, went over to the Welcome Center, and picked up a Bible. I'd much rather you, you pref- I'd prefer to you grab a Bible now than to just to stare at the screen, because I'd really love you to look at the context of it and look at it verse by verse and flip back to it as you feel led. Matthew chapter 25 is our text. And this is in the middle of a few different parables. It's the last parables of four, and then there's one final parable after it that finishes out chapter 25. And they share this common theme of watchfulness and readiness. Jesus has been teaching on the Mount of Olives, and he's responding to a question that his disciples ask him. He, he's asked this question in chapter 24, verse 3. His disciples say to him, Tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus responds directly to what they ask him. All the rest of chapter 24 and all the rest of chapter 25 are his response, is his response to this question of what's the sign? When can we expect your return? He gives them story after story, parable after parable, and this common theme is watchfulness. You better be ready. You better be ready. And so as we get to our text this morning, the parable of the talents. I want to begin in verse 13. Most of your Bibles will have verse 13 as the final verse in the parable about the ten virgins, but it could very likely also be the link to this next parable that we're about to read. So this is Matthew 25, verse 13. Therefore, he's speaking to his disciples now, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, It will be, and when he says it will be, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Story probably sounds familiar to most of us. You've probably heard this story before, but I want to pause for a bit and define a few terms. Before we get any further, there's, there's two important things that we need to note about this story for it to make sense to us. And the first is what a talent is. What in the world is a talent? This is what the master, the, he's identified here as a man, but later he's called the master. This is what the master is giving his servants. He gives five talents to one, two talents to another, and the third servant gives one talent. Now, your Bible may not say talent. It might have a different phrase in there, but the word talent actually comes from the original Greek in the New Testament, which is how the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And so, literally, it means talent. And a talent there uh, meant, at first, it was a unit of measurement. You would weigh things in talents, and then later, it became to be understood in monetary values. So, it actually was kind of akin to money. Some of your Bible translations might even use a phrase of money. Some will say maybe that he received five bags of gold or five bags of silver. Sometimes there'll be a little footnote, like I have a footnote in my Bible here, that says a talent was worth more than $1,000. And this kind of helps us, oh, we're talking about money here. And it's helpful to understand that we're talking about money, but the problem is that this does not do any justice to the amount of money that we're talking about. A talent was valued at 20 years' worth of a common laborer's salary. Now again, that sounds like a lot of money, but how much is a common laborer's salary? Like we talk in 30, like what is that? Well, if we take BC's uh, current minimum wage, which is $10.25, 
And if we think, okay, maybe just it's the minimum wage, so we'll say that's common laborers' wages for now. We can always underestimate and then be amazed at what we come up with. Five talents, minimum wage, yearly salary, multiply it by 20. The man who received five talents gets almost $2.5 million. The man with two talents, just under a million. The servant who receives one talent, we're talking about The point being, this was a precious commodity. Now, when I was a kid and I heard this story, I kind of envisioned a farmer who had a big field and he's going to go on a journey. He kind of flips a 50-cent piece to his servants like, hey, I'm taking off for a while. Take care of things. See ya. We're talking 20 years of salary. We're talking more money than I would think most of us have. So what we learn is that this is precious. This master is wealthy, but this master is also entrusting something extremely precious to each one of his servants. This is not chump change. And the second thing we need to know before we keep reading the story is that the master does not distribute his talents evenly. This is very obvious. One gets five, one gets two, and one gets one. And the story tells us very deliberately that Each were given a talent according to their ability. Now, just as you and I allocate our resources different, we choose to work a certain amount of hours, we choose to sleep a certain amount of hours, we invest in different things, some with higher risk, some lower risk, different sums of money. This is what the master essentially is doing. He distributes it according to his desires and according to the abilities that he sees here in the servant. And that's important. Another thing that's important to note is that the one who receives two talents is not going to be held accountable for one talent or for five talents or for nine talents. He's only going to be held accountable for two talents because that is what is entrusted to him. Some of us might think, well, that poor guy who got one talent, it's not really fair. The other servant got two and the other one got five. Well, the master, his goal is not fairness. It's effectiveness. He's interested in a good investment. He's interested in how these talents are going to be put to work. And as we're about to find out, he shows much wisdom in how he allocates these funds. Let's keep reading our story here in verse 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Verse 22. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. We don't know how long the master was away, but we do know that when he returned, however many years this may have been, he went and he settled accounts with his servants. Now, if 
I invested three and a half, four, four and a half million dollars, whatever it was that we could add this up to. I think one of the first things I would do when I went home is check my portfolio or say, hey, where's my money? What's the property value? What have you done with it? And this is exactly what the master does. He settles accounts right away with his servants. And again, this is that theme of of expectation, of watchfulness, of readiness that we see in this parables. The servants, likely, they do not know when he's returning, so they must be ready for him to return. And the servant who's given five talents, he shows that he has doubled his master's uh, gift to him. And the same with the two talents. Each of them have doubled their investment. We don't know how they did this. What we do know is that they did something. And that seems to be the important thing. We don't know what they invested in or how they used that money. The story tells us that they put it to work. That's what the story says. They took this talent and they put it to work. And it resulted in greater gains, both for the master and for the servant. The master gets a a healthy return, a double return on his investment. And then the servants hear these words that we already talked about. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then they're entrusted with even more resources. The one who has had five now has ten. But of course, the climax of the story is yet to come. And this is where the story gets extremely interesting. Verse 24 is where we're at now. Then the man, the third servant, who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and scattering where you have or gathering where you have not gathered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The third servant has a much different story to tell to his master. Instead of putting his talent to work, he buries it in the ground. Now, as senseless as this may seem, given our current economic times, maybe it's not the worst thing to do to hide it in your mattress or bury it in the ground. But in the ancient world, this was actually pretty com- a pretty common thing to do. If you had something of value, the thing to do if you wanted to keep it secure, obviously it wasn't going to work for you, but if you wanted to guarantee yourself It's going to be there. You dug it in the ground. You put it in the ground. You buried it. That's how you made sure that it was secure. There's another story that that Jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven earlier in Matthew's gospel. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure buried in a field. And when he finds it, you know what he does? He buries it again. Then he goes off. He sells everything that he has so that he can buy the field. Burying something in the ground was actually not that odd of a thing to do, but it signifies security. And so he secures what he has by putting it in the ground. And his explanation for why he does this is he looks at the master as this shrewd businessman. This is someone who, who gathers even if he hasn't even sown many seed. In other words, he thinks, my master is gaining way more profit and way more money then I can even imagine. Like everything that he touches just seems to have this great return. Now he's entrusted this talent to me. I'm pretty scared at the expectations. So instead of taking a risk, let's just bury it in the ground and at least I know that I can give it back to him and I, and I won't get 
judged for it because he hasn't generated any sort of loss. It's almost as if when the master returns, the, the third servant takes out his talent and it's almost like a merchandise exchange. If you were to go to Walmart or to the Home Depot and it's still shrink-wrapped with a price tag on it and says, here, here you go, this belongs to you. I, I don't want it. Let's just walk away and call it a deal. The servant calls himself afraid. Those are his words to describe himself. The master calls him lazy. And the reason why the servant is called wicked is because he's more interested in security than he is in service to the master. The servant who buries his talent in the ground really shows that he has no love or interest in the master at all. And then the parable concludes with a very ironic twist. The servant who is afraid and just wants to play it safe now hears the words that he's been most fearful of. The master continues to speak to him in verse 28. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he does have will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master does not demonstrate fairness in this story. Servants get different amount of talents. And then this poor third servant, the one who receives the least amount of anyone else, what he does have is taken away from him, and it's given to the one who had the most talent. For those of us who are wired with a strong sense of fairness and justice like I am, this is really, really troubling. But if we only focus on this part of the story, we miss the entire point of the story. The third servant is worthless because he does nothing with his talent. The master actually proves himself to be wise and shrewd because he takes a poor investment and he redistributes his investment to something with a much higher rate of return. This parable is not about fairness. This parable is about productivity. The point of the parable is that the master expects productivity. Productivity is rewarded and a lack of productivity is punished. Now, you look at this point, the master expects productivity, and you might think, but this is the Bible. I didn't expect to hear this in the Bible. These are the, these are the words that Jesus is telling in this story. This doesn't sound like something we read from the Bible. This sounds like something I'd hear from my boss in a business meeting. We expect productivity. We expect profitability. This might surprise us, but this is far and away the most overriding point here in the story. The master is interested in productivity. It's how he distributes his talents. It's how he judges these servants based on what they've done with their talents. He expects productivity from his servants. And even though Jesus does not identify who the master is in this story, based on the context of this story and the other parables around it, it's extremely clear to us that he is speaking about the Son of Man. He's speaking about himself, Jesus. The disciples ask, what can we expect? When will the end of the age come? How can we prepare ourselves for when you will return? And he tells story and story and story after another. He says, it's like a man going on a journey and entrusting his servants with talents. And so we see that it's not just the master that expects productivity, it's Jesus himself who expects 
productivity from his followers. And this is why the third servant is judged so harshly. This is why the master takes his talent away from him and gives it to the first. The master expects productivity. He gets productivity from his first and his second servants, but he gets no productivity from his third servant. But the story doesn't just show us the motives of the master. We learn quite a bit about the master in this story. We also receive a very direct warning in this story, seeing how the third servant chooses to use or not use his talent. Our warning is this. Use your talents wisely. Use your talents wisely. The clear warning is to those who choose to hide their talents, to those who choose not to put their talents to work, to those who choose instead to let their talents remain idle. If we were to use historical church language, this parable gives us a warning against sloth, whether it's motivated by laziness, a fear of change, or an unwillingness to take a risk for the master. Use your talents wisely because the master expects productivity. Now, if we're going to take this message seriously, if we're going to read the word of God and say, I've received this this word and, and I want to put this into action, we actually need to go back to this word talent and flesh it out a little bit more and get us a better understanding. Because you might think, well, you know, if we're talking about Jesus being the master, I haven't received $972,000. I don't have that sort of money. So what does it literally mean for me to have a talent? How am I supposed to understand this word? And when we think about the word talent in our context and our language and our culture, we usually think about it as a gift or ability that someone naturally has. That's usually what we mean. That person's extremely talented. That musician, she, she's extremely talented on the guitar. She's, I mean, that's, that's her talent. And the reason why we think of this word in this terms is because the English word talent is actually derived directly from this, this parable. This is where we got our word is based on this parable. And while we usually think of a talent as someone's natural abilities, a better understanding of a talent in this story is to see them as abilities given by the master to serve the master. A talent is something that's given by the master with the sole purpose of serving the master. So we should think of talents in terms of productivity to the master. How can our abilities, how can our talents be used to serve the master? And because of that, there's almost no limitation to what a talent is in our life. All that we are, all that we are, as entrusted to us, as gifted to us from the Lord, can be used to serve the Lord, to be productive for Him. Our financial resources are talents because they can be used to serve our Master. The same is true for our physical resources, our home, a vehicle, equipment that we have. Those can be put to work to serve the master. Our abilities and our skills, our intellect, each of these things can be used to serve the master. Our experiences are talents. Some of the most difficult times in our life, pain, sorrow, despair, loneliness, as we've learned through experiences, these can actually be used to serve the master as we minister to others. And as we reflect on how the Master has taught us things through these experiences, our time is a talent. It's a resource that we have that we can either use for ourselves or we can put it to work to serve the Master. 
Now, one of the most common objections to this, to this message, to this theme of having talents and being entrusted with talents is this idea that maybe you don't have much talent at all. Some of you might be telling yourself that in your head. You might be thinking, well, God simply just hasn't given me many talents. If this is what you find yourself thinking in your head, you need to remember that based on the story, the important question in this parable is not how many talents you've received, but what you're doing with the talents that you have been given. We've all been given talents. Some of us have common talents, like time. Many of us have very unique talents that God specifically gives us for a purpose. So I want to ask you a few questions about your talents and how you're putting them to work. Do you know what talent you have been entrusted with? Do you know your talents? If you don't know what your talents are, when are you going to find out? Because what we see in this parable and what we see in the parables around it is that the clock is ticking. We do not know how much time we have left. We do not know when the master will return. So if you don't know what your talents are, when are you planning on finding that out? I know that Pastor Brad and I would love to sit down with you and help you hear from God and help you look at your life and think, what has God uniquely provided you with, with the sole purpose of using it to be productive to the master? Another question, how are you using your money to work for the master? What are you doing with your financial resources to invest in the work of the master? Followers of Christ, the church, are equipped with the task of spreading the good news, of building the kingdom of God here on earth. And building the kingdom of God is not cheap. It just isn't. It costs money to send out missionaries. It costs money to equip people. It costs money to, to uh, purchase curriculum to teach our young people. It costs money to resource people. It costs money to spread the gospel. What are you doing with your money? Are you putting your money to work for the kingdom of God? And if not, if you're not putting your money to work for the kingdom of God, how is your situation any different than the situation of the third servant in this story? Third question, how are you using your time to serve the master? How are you investing your time to serve the master? And a fourth question, as we think about our series title, what competition do your talents face that is keeping you from investing your talent in God's work? We use our talents in one way or another. Most of us know what they are. So what competition are you facing that says, I will choose instead to invest my talent in this area and not in the work of the master? Now, I said earlier that it's my belief that most Christians would like to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. To my knowledge, this phrase only comes from this parable. I'm pretty sure, I, haven't read the, I didn't have a chance to read the entire Bible cover to cover earlier this week, but I'm pretty sure in my research that there's only two times in the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, twice this phrase is used. It's used once to the first servant. It's used a second time to the second servant. But my guess is that most people assume 
They make the assumption that when the day of judgment day comes, I'm going to hear those words too. Because they think, well, I'm, I'm good. I'm faithful. So I'll hear these words too. But the reason that the first two servants are said, this is said of them, has nothing to do with their morality. It has nothing to do with their goodness. It has to do with their usefulness. It has to do with their productivity. And so, if you're not putting your talents to work, if you're not useful, if you're not productive with your talents, I don't understand how you would hear these words on the Day of Judgment Day based on what we see in this parable. It may be your intention to hear these words, but it's your direction, not your intention, that determines your destination. And if you aren't being faithful with what you've been entrusted with, I don't see how the master would say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Use your talents wisely because the master expects productivity. Now, I can't anticipate how each one of you will receive this message. I would love to think that people say, Whew, yes, let's do this. I'm ready. Let's invest my talent. The master is worthy. I want to put it to use. But realistically, I'm guessing there's a number of you that feel like you're being pushed in an area of your life that you'd really rather not be pushed in. But just think for a moment. Imagine for a moment what would happen if our church here, if Jericho Ridge Community Church were a a group of people who knew their talents and they put their talents to work. Imagine if we were a group of people that were like the first and second servants who took their talents and put them to work. What would that do here? What would that do here? I think that when given the opportunities, each person, as they're given opportunities, whether it's at work, it's at home, it's at their church, I think if we really understood this concept, I think if we were a church of first and second servants, we would begin to say yes, and we would begin to say no to opportunities for the right reasons. Many of us are good at saying yes and saying no. But is it done with the reason of saying, I want to make sure that I'm taking my talent and I'm putting it to work for the master? I imagine that if we truly understand this parable, we would stop looking at our bank accounts and we'd stop looking at our calendar and thinking, that's my money And that's my time. And instead we would say, these are resources that I can use to serve the master. I think we would realize that each of us are entrusted with a different amount of talents. And these can vary over our our lifetime, even over seasons of our life. And because of that, I think we would be released from guilt at times when our capacity shrinks. When there's a season in your life where you realize, you know what? I don't have the time that I used to have. I don't have the financial resources that I had. I don't have the emotional energy and strength that I used to have that we would be released from guilt at times when we say, you know what? I can't give as much in this area of my life right now. And I think that we would stop thinking about the words, well done and good and faithful servant, as a hopeful destination for judgment day. And instead, we would let these words guide us every day on the path that is directed towards its destination. Let's pray together.
Lord God, your word says that you have equipped us, you have provided us with everything that we need for faith and godliness. We know that like a good father, you provide us with what we need. We thank you for this story, Lord, that reminds us that we are here for a purpose, that we are saved for a purpose, and we are commissioned to do your work. And so, God, I ask that we would recognize the talent that you have entrusted to us, these precious talents that are so valuable it's even tough to comprehend in monetary sense, that you would help us realize that we have a mission and that it is worth the cost. It is worth the risk. Lord, I pray that the things that we imagine, the things that we imagine would happen if we were to understand this concept and put it to work, I pray that they would happen, Lord. I pray that we would see a church of first and second servants. People who take our talents and immediately we put them to work to serve the Master. Lord, we thank you for your word of truth, which convicts, which inspires us, which motivates us to action, Lord. Amen.